It's a hell of a thing, killing a man. You take away all he's got, and all he's ever gonna have. Yeah. Well, I guess they had it coming. Why is the Western genre important for American film? Well, I guess in one sense it's the most American of all genres in that it talks about American ambition, the extension of the prairie, the slow process of civilization, the idea of rugged individualism, and the problem of violence, all of which are enormously important and cornerstone problems of American culture. So the Western, both for foreign audiences and for domestic audiences, is a kind of signal statement about America. And this sometimes can be misleading, but is often a very essential to our self-understanding. Let's talk about Unforgiven. How does it differ from past Westerns? Well, it may not be the first Western of its kind, but it certainly is the most distinctive and the most perfectly realized Western of its kind, which is a kind of super-realism, especially on the subject of violence. And, um, you know, there are four or five Western plots, and there are a handful of Western character arrangements. And, you know, if we had time, I could sit down and illuminate you on all these common structures of the Western. But what's most interesting about this film is not how it fulfills the revenge plot or the three-person triangular character situation, but rather its moral statement about the Western culture and American life, which um, is shocking on some level. Uh, if we start at the end, we expect in a Western to have a plot in which there's justification by the action of the gunslinger or the lawman. And what we mean by that is, whether it's who shot Liberty Valance or the searchers, we expect some kind of, or Shane, we expect in every case some kind of reconciliation, some kind of moral avenging of the, of the dishonest cattle herders or the or the criminal class, or the, the, the uh, unfair or criminal sheriff, or something like that. So we expect that to be the, the problem of the plot, that that'll be done. And a naive viewer of Unforgiven could read the last 10 or 15 minutes of the movie in that way. They could say that, that money came back to avenge the loss of his friend's life. And the fact that he's being, as he says, decorating the front of the, the, the bar and that, this, and that he must come back out of friendship to do, but, but we know that that isn't really true. He offers that as a misleading plot possibility, one that goes back to his older Westerns, to, to you know, things like High Plains Drifter and, and uh, you know, classics of the earlier period, Outlaw Josie Wales. But instead, he throws away the whiskey bottle reminding us that he said, I don't remember much of the murdering I did because I was drunk at the time. And when he throws away that bottle, he's now, he's now in a sense, prepared 
to do an act of violence that marked his youth because everybody was frightened by that character when he was a young man, including his closest friends and allies. And everyone stayed awake staring at him to see if he might randomly kill them or injure them because he was a machine of, of violence. We find this out in the last scene when, he, when, the, when the young lady, as well as the little Bill, enumerate his amazing crimes, murdering the, the U.S. Marshal in 1870 and killing men, women, and children. Uh, <clears throat> which he doesn't deny. The most misleading reading of the film would be that he avenges his friend and, that, and pays back the loss of the prostitutes who've been mistreated by the legal system, which he does do. But these are byproducts. These are, these are secondary. What he really does is return to his original nature that nothing could remove, not his wife's love, not his new kind of quasi-religious mentality, not the worry about his children and the farm, not the practical life, not switching professions. None of those things could remove this kernel, this inner power and ferocity, this what the Greeks called a dunamis, an inward power, a frightening power. Nothing could remove that. In the last scene, he, he shows that he is still the same man, a man of unlimited violence and danger, killing everybody innocent and guilty, including his nemesis, Little Bill. And the film is a film about how maybe the gunslinger, maybe the Western hero, maybe the sheriff, maybe the stock characters of that moral plot are really driven by violence and not by a, 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 a very specific moral requirement. And this is a very important conclusion to the career of a man who started with Dirty Harry and, and uh, the, the man with no name in the Sergioni Westerns, because there was great violence there, but it was a mystery. In Unforgiven, all of those films become less mysterious through Eastwood's final statement about violence. Okay, so could you tell, tell us a little bit about how this film factors into the larger structure of the heroic discourse in the Western tradition? That's a, that's a very... Excellent question, and the right question. You know, when we think of heroism, we think of courage, and we think that that's, it's the enacting of that virtue is heroism. Um, and we don't mean by the courage of a hero, we don't mean like uh, willingness to pay your taxes or being a good parent or, or, or living up to obligations. We mean physical skill under dangerous circumstances. And heroism always had an element of violence. It never was a purely moral uh, and, and easily justifiable uh, action. Or, or uh, it was never enacted by characters who were purely good. And let me say what I think about that. Let's look at the Iliad. The Iliad's the parent heroic discourse of the whole Western culture. And if we look at the Iliad, the manus, the manic energy, which is mentioned in the first line by Homer, never goes away. And even during the long wait of Achilles, when he won't return because of his anger towards Agamemnon, that anger is retained through all those books in which he's absent. And when he returns, it, the anger becomes greater. 
and has now turned from Agamemnon onto any man who gets in, his, in front of him. And he, he, he literally mows down multitudes. Now you could say that isn't he defending the good city that's on the shield? Isn't he the, isn't he the military hero that defends the good city? But I don't think Homer was, was meaning to say that. That's not, that's not the implication of the shield passage. I think Homer is ex offering us the idea that a man may do collateral good or may be necessary in the, in the survival of culture, but his motivations and, and his ethos, his real character, may still be one of an uncontrolled and manic energy. And that he may be a dangerous friend as well as a dangerous foe. And nobody more, that, that's not true of anybody more in the tradition than Achilles. After all, even in the last scene where there is moral reconciliation on a, on a small scale, when he talks to Priam, even then Priam knows he could kill him in a moment, with a moment's change of emotion. He says to them, I could kill you with my bare hands right here while we talk. And like, as though he doesn't know for sure is that what he, what, his own intent. And he does find in that moment of truth that he has a father the same way that Hector had a father. And there's something in common. There's some kind of human commonality. But he says, I'm only going to be feeling this for a short time, so you better be careful. Meaning, I, I, I like money in Unforgiven. It won't take me long to return to my Achillean normal st status. Okay, That's what he warns Priam. Don't think I'm going to be this nice guy for more than a very short period. You should really leave now. You know, take the body and go, because I, I'm not going to feel this way in, in an hour. Okay. And, you know, the same could be said of Odysseus in a different sense. He's a, he's, he was known in antiquity. There's a wonderful book by the scholar Stanford on this subject. He was known in antiquity as dishonest, untrustworthy, clever, twisting, and in his own way violent, as we see when he in the horror of what he does to the, not just to the suitors who were his male enemies, but hanging up all the maids of the house that weren't honest. And you know, there's an unlimited willingness to do, to do damage at the end of the Odyssey. And he never was thought through the whole narrative as honest, straight shooting. No, he was always thought of by, by, as a man that was dubious. At the beginning of the Ajax of Sophocles, Ajax is in his tent. Ajax is a straight shooting, simple upright kind of guy who has physical strength. And he says, who's that dog sniffing around my tent who I could never trust with anything in this world? And it's Odysseus. And so the hero has always been ambiguous. Now, let me make one more comment before you ask your next question. What did the hero always have? He had enormous skill, like money. Money is with a, with a, gun, with a pistol. And, but he had not only that skill, but he had the willingness to use it. And he had a kind of possession. We see that like in Diomedes in Book 5 of the Iliad. We see that in the Kalevala. The heroes are, are really, they have a divine force or power, which makes them even more frightening. And we see that in the Song of Roland. And we see that in Beowulf. And, we see that this is a, and what's more, other than skill and divine energy, they also have a very limited and narrow group of friends who they trust. It's usually five or six or seven or eight or ten people. Everybody else is either so far beneath them as not worthy of attention or their enemy. And another thing they all have and they all believe in, and it, it's shared by all the heroic discourse in the tradition, is a belief in fatalism, fatality. What, what, the, what the 
what the Greeks thought of as a kind of personal string attached to your life, which is cut at any moment, but you don't know when. It's like a, it's a terrifying realization of your of your uh, your temporality, the briefness of life. And the hero knows this, and he and he and he does all of his violence with the recognition that he will be destroyed, that he will not survive in the in the melee. He will not survive the events of his own, and and really none of them do. None, none of them do. And money says to little Bill, "I'll see you in hell," and and they agree. And when he says, you know, I was building a house, I don't deserve this. He says, deserve's got nothing to do with it. It's not a moral judgment he's making. It's a, it's a kind of amoral, energetic action. And little Bill, who's as cruel and, and, and intolerant as he is, has to understand it. He can't pretend he, that there's some question of justice. And that fatalism is, is a frightening and central thing of the heroic discourse. It's what every hero recognizes. When, when, when the Schofield kid, who's really being introduced to violence and the horrors of, of this kind of world, which he doesn't understand because he's a child, when he said, they, you know, he had it coming, Clint Eastwood says with frozen insight and indifference, we all have it coming, kid. That's the fatalism. That's the reality of, the, of living and dying. And that's, that's a very important gesture in, in the film taken as a whole. Now, can you tell me a little bit about the uh, significance of the three characters and their triangulation? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting problem. I claim in, in what I've written about the Western, uh, I claim that you can tell what type of Western you're seeing, or roughly the zones of the Western, by how many Western heroes are or Western figures are involved in the character structure of the plot. So if there's one, that's the survival adventure genre, uh, like Little Big Man, or um, the great example is Jeremiah Johnson. And those, the, that one always represents a survivor against nature and the Indians and every force imaginable. And it's always, a, Will Penny is another example. And some of these are among the most interesting Westerns. Uh, they have the simplest plot because the one only leaves place for, for the conniving and, and organizing of, of this discourse of survival. So it's much simpler. But then there's two. And two tends to be a buddy picture, which can exist in many genres. Uh, Butch Cassidy's Sundance Kid is a classic example of it, but there are many of these uh, two character structures. Sometimes they're enemies. That's actually a minority of the two Western, you know, the War Wagon, Kirk Douglas and John Wayne are friends. In, in the Butch Cassidy, these are two idealized friends and their friendship is the subject of the movie in a certain way. And you can see this in many, many Westerns. Three is one of the most interesting and complex patterns of the Western, and it's the one of Unforgiven. Generally, when there's three, although it's not an absolute law, generally when there's three, there's two older contemporaries who share some kind of uh, project or understanding, and a younger man who learns about something from them. And uh, this is the plot of, of Peckinpah's first great film, uh, Ride the High Country 
In there, you find the young man meets two aging lawmen, and he learns from them the good and the bad of, of that world because they represent both good and evil, and they're sort of split it between them. And he comes to see the possibilities from watching them. The same is in, in North to Alaska, for example. You have, you have the two elder pursuers of the love object, which is the beautiful girl, who will do anything to each other to get her. And you have the young guy who also falls in love, and he learns from those two, the, the, not only the love issue, but more the, the nature of, of courage and, and single-mindedness and self-sacrifice. And that, that's a really very common structure of the Western. Cowboy has that structure, which, which is a halfway interesting Western. So here we have it again in, in Unforgiven, right? We have the same, we have, we have two aging uh, gunmen who in their youth were criminals. Uh, and we have a young man who's pretending and overreaching and saying, I can do what you do. I, I'm, I'm, but really he's a, uh, you know, he's a fraud of a kind of acceptable kind because of his youth. And he finds out in the film, he finds out two things. He finds out that money is, is much more horrifying than Logan. That even the two elder guys, both who have enormous skill and enormous aptitude for this world, that Logan's singularly dangerous and frightened. He finds that out as the, by the end of the film. He questions it in the first half. I don't think you can do any harm to anybody. I don't believe all those stories. Logan just stares at him like, you have no idea. You have no idea what this guy can do. You don't want to know. And so the triangulation there is very useful to the film because not only does it separate youth coming into experience and the terrors of the violent world that he's entered into, that's, he represents the audience. We're going to see the real naked terror of this style of life. But also he sees the difference in Logan and money, that money is a pure vessel of violence and that Logan's been humanized by age and he's now become an actual farmer and he's now left the world of the gunslinger, the criminal, the violent, and, and he, can't, he can't shoot the cowboy. He can't shoot the cowboy, but money can. Money can instantly switch back from his humanized status under his religious wife and his new family. He can, he can switch back when required. Not for the money, but because he wants to kill the kid. That's the real object. He can't say no to that. And when he hands over the... the, the, the you know, the rifle. It's a terrifying moment in the, in the film structure. And anyway, so I think, I think it's a very expert manipulation of the triangle, the three-character Western. Okay, so let's talk about another relation, um, that of Little Bill and English Bob to money. Yeah, okay. Now, that, that's a different triangle. That's a triangle where you, you don't have opposition, but you have identity. Um, you know, some of the critics of the movie, including Roger Ebert and, and two or three other important critics of the, at the time, said that the subplot with Little Bill was, was uh, Little Bill and, and English Bob was not effective. And was, uh, it, it, it lengthened the movie and made the movie baggy and, and overly elaborated. And, and since English Bob never even met the protagonist, it calls into question his significance in the film. And, and then, so one can pause and think about that problem because he doesn't have a relation really to the main plot except for the fact that he's 
apparently willing to try to fulfill the the uh, prostitute's contract. But he but I think he's there for a different reason. He's there for one of the what might be called the second level story of the western. The first level being the story of violence, and the second level story is is um, you know. Uh, very different. The second level story is legend as opposed to truth. What is historical and, and know, knowable as opposed to what is the product of, of hyperbole and legend. And in a way, money transcends legend by being pure violence. But remember in the scene where English Bob has been beaten up mercilessly by little Bill, he then puts him in prison and he, and he unveils the reality of his career, all of his dishonesty about earlier stories, which he's lied about for his biographer, who's a journalist. And the biographer is a believer in the Western story. He's an Easterner who believes in all these, these high tales. And what the movie, the structure of the movie from the point of view of legend is quite interesting. First of all, first of all, the, the, this, this character played by Saul Rubinek, Bo, Beauchamp, um, First of all, he realizes that, that, that English Bob is, is in part a phony, although he is a dangerous person. And he realizes that little Bill also is a, is a very evil force and a very in, a kind of a criminal form of the sheriff. And this gives him a whole new angle on the, on the Western situation. But it also, he sees money in the last scene that he realizes what, what the essence of what he's been searching for, which is a man with absolutely unlimited violent energy. And then he comes to... Eastwood in that last scene and says, you know, uh, basically, I'd like to follow you and tell your story. And he says, you know, who was the last man, uh, who was the first man you killed and how did you know the order? A acting like he's kind of genius and knew the order of people to shoot. And he says, I don't know who the first was, but I know who the last is going to be if you don't get out of here right now. And he runs because Eastwood's not willing to play for the journalist's interest. He's not willing to, he's not interested in being a legend. He's, he's, he's pure, the thing in itself. He's not interested in any kind of credit or... So yeah, that, that, and so that triangle are the three uh, types of the violent Western hero. One who's now become a sheriff, but who really shares the same character as money, which is Little Bill, is an egregious monster, which is true of a lot of the gunplay sheriffs of the 1870s and 80s. That was, that's, you know, a lot of those guys like Wyatt Earp and Batmasters were really semi-criminal characters. And they were in such a tough situation, they were useful to citizens. But, um, and then English Bob's another version of that. He's been making his living shooting Chinese workers at the railroad. So it's like he's a, another horrible figure. And uh, Money is like the, the, the most real version of a terrible, terrible genus that includes those three guys. And so through the, through the uh, analysis of what is legendary and what is real, we get, to, um, we get to money. We get to the essence of money by the end. And of course, it's also a way of Eastwood criticizing his own movies. You know, because in High Plains Drifter, a ghost comes back from the dead to pay back all the people that mistreated the... The, the sheriff and the ghost and, 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 the, and you know, uh, Pale Rider has a similar kind of bogus supernatural plot about justice and reversal and, and Outlaw Josie Wales turns a man who's really uh, kind of an indifferent, shiftless guy into this protector of 
the community and the village and he realizes now he's like a John Ford character at the end. He's become good and noble. Somehow, Eastwood decided, I don't know about any of those people anymore. I'm not sure about all this, this magical moral uh, reconciliation. Maybe I'll just say what, what these guys that I've been portraying are really like for once at the end. In my last go, maybe I'll give it a... And he said he waited, you know, 20 years to do the, to do the script because he, or close to 20 years, because he wasn't ready to make that statement in the earlier period. He was still trying to make sense out of the Sergio Leone character and, the, and in a way, Dirty Harry has the same role. Am I with the law or against it? Am I above it or in it? And now we have a guy who's not bothering at all with any, any pretense of, of the good. Okay. Anyway, I think that, that, that's the significance of those three, I think. Okay. Let's talk about the place of the prostitutes in the film. Well, it's interesting. It, it, it's the first gesture of saying we're going to peel away the normal idealism of, of a certain kind of Western. If you think of the two greatest Western directors, I mean, there's, uh, let's say the two most prestigious, the greatest is probably a harder thing to judge. But if we think of Ford, for example, uh, Ford has an image of the, the West and the building of the West and the noble hero who, who sacrifices and, and, the, and the manly community uh, and, the, and, the, and this idea of uh, the monumental landscape which he overcomes as well as all the fearful human dangers to, to, you know. And even in The Searchers where there's moral ambiguity, there's still in the end, the girl comes back to the family and even though Ethan the hero is a kind of outsider. He's an outsider that does good. It's like those readings of the Iliad that says that really Achilles is the defender of the order of society and community, even if he doesn't know it. Well, that's the kind of character Ethan is. At the end, he realizes that humanity is such that, although he wanted to kill the girl because she'd become an Indian, he decides, no, she really is a member of our family. And so it's like this strange kind of realization of humanity in the film. And, and, and Ford films tend to have that kind of situation. And, um, you know, uh, the Western was full of films about the goodness of America and how it rose above its, its limitations through energy and work and, and courage, and, you know, which is, a, you know, one true part of American culture and it, you know there are many truths that are that combat in the in the in the in the uh, combat with each other in the description of any country so so I'm not, I'm not saying that's like a, a lower form of thinking or anything but that was the dominant thing of the 40s and 50s and, and um, the other the other kind of western was the western of of the payback somebody's been treated unjustly and the most common form that I recall of that was the cattlemen owned the county and the, or the province or the territory, and they and they they ran it with with no regard for the interests of the poor farmer or the shepherd, and these were the, these were the pastoral agricultural figures that were kind of the idealized America with the family cabin and and the, and the horrible cattleman who ran, had thousands of acres under his control would destroy their world to maintain his grazing rights and his water rights and. It was a, one thing, it was a picture of a kind of overreaching capitalism 
that we associate with progressiveness, progressive era like TR and Taft and that world. That Another thing it was, was the idea that justice in the end will out. And so somebody comes to town, a, 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 an outsider, who's usually a gunman, who's given up his gun. He hangs up his, his he always has a scene where they hang up their holster and they're never going to shoot anybody again. But then they have to because justice demands it. And they see the, they see the terrible treatment of the farmer and the citizen and, 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 and justice demands. So John Wayne intervenes to save Jimmy Stewart and the man who shot Liberty Valance the same way that Alan Ladd intervenes in Shane to save the farmers from the destruction of the cattlemen. And, there's, and this is a big... So here's a, almost like a kind of weird comical version of that. The just treatment of the prostitutes have been bought and brought out to the prairie town to be like servant slaves in a bar. And they've been treated unjustly. They've been treated unjustly. And now Clint Eastwood, who's really a maniac, is going to come and make just the treatment of these prostitutes. So the whole underlying plot is a kind of super realism that's kind of devastating the idea that the Western, it doesn't bring in the noble farmer or the pastoral element or the simple people or virtue. It brings in prostitutes who are kind of, uh, you know, leaving aside the problem of prostitution itself, they're also like the victims really not of a structure like the cattleman idea, but they're a victim of this kind of rank tradesmanship that the bar owner has, where they're more important as property than as humans. And, and you don't, you, you maybe whip the guy who rapes them or beats them up, but you really, you don't want to hurt the property because they're owned by the bar guy and he has that right as a property holder and that surpasses any criminal act. And so in a way, Eastwood is saying on one side, the, this is a devastating form of realism, on the one side, the gunslinger is a man of violence. On the other side, the town and its and its whole sense of propriety is based on money. With it's like a pun on the hero's name. It's based on money, and it doesn't really have any underlying, you know, kind of savable. So, so the realism of the movie from beginning to end is 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 terrifying. Now you can say, well, the prostitutes are humans and they have their rights and they've been cheated, and he does he does serve their cause. And at the end, they look at him like he's a knight in shining armor, but there's irony there, right? They, they look at him kind of wistfully when he's leaving, but they also have looks like, oh, who is this guy? And what did he really do? It's, it's like scary to them, but somehow the miracles happen when they've been, they've been uh, vindicated. So it, it's a very odd setup for the film. It also has, you know... It also has the problem of Clint Eastwood associating himself with the scarred face of the woman. He says, you know, normally I would have picked you if I wasn't true to my wife. Nobody knows until later that it's his dead wife, so it makes it even more a higher level of abstract virtue. He says, no, if I would have picked you, even though you, because we both have scars, he says to her. So, that, so the, the woman who's actually the victim of the crime that sets off the, the entire plot ends up being a kind of double of him. His scars are inward. There's, there's, some, there's some kind of inexplicable uh, you know, you know, injury to him that's made in this person. She, she's like a mirror then. And they look at each other at that dawn with the snow on the mountains and they're, of all people in the world, this 22-year-old prostitute and, and Eastwood become these 
sympathetic figures. And that shows you the weirdness of the moral world of the, of the film. So yeah, I, I think that I think they 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 serve a very complex part in the plot as a whole. To wrap up, could you make any uh, final comments on the last scene of the film? Well, I've already hinted at it, but you know, I think what we expect in the last scene of a western, a standard western, uh and in the, we see this in numerous Eastwood westerns, as well as, you know, Hawks westerns and Walsh's westerns. And we see this is there's always some kind of act of, of justification, and we expect that, and especially since Logan's been murdered and tortured and now set up in front of the thing. And so we, as I said, we could read it as going back to the kind of the heart of the genre, but really. When we see the whiskey bottle, when we hear his speech, yes, I've killed everything that walks and crawls sometime in my life, and I'm here to kill you, little Bill. This clarifies that it's not really an act of vengeance or justice. It's, a, it's an act from an inner force. I am a brutal force that you never dreamed of. I'm even worse than you, which nobody could have believed because little Bill is a monster. And now it's your time has come. You met your, your match. And then they have their little exchange and make it even more explicit that they'll both end up in hell, which they accept, and that uh, deserving is not relevant to the, the action at the end of the movie. And so it, it's, a kind of, it's a kind of signature of amorality in the last scenes of the movie. And when he goes out into the street, he says, you know, uh, anybody who takes a shot at me I will not only kill you, but I'll kill your whole family and burn your, your damn house down. And he's not kidding. He's, what point is, look, I, I, there's no limit. You already should realize that. So don't even think about shooting at me. It's not even worth, worth even considering. And of course, they're all nervous and they can't, even the people who have a clear view of him and can shoot him won't do it. Because he's now become like a, a kind of uh, horrifying energy floating through the town that everybody's completely terrified of. And of course, there's no more terrifying thing in this world than a person who is dominated and governed by violence and no other thing can, can affect him or move him. When you meet that person, you're, you're, in a, you're in a terrible, terrible situation. Everybody tries to avoid that. And um, so, yeah, I think the end of the film... Uh, although it can be misread as paying back for Logan's torture. I think it has to be understood as a final statement by Eastwood about violence itself. And I think it's, it's a, one of the most effective last 10, 20, 15, 20 minutes of a Western that's ever been put on screen. And I think because of the ending and because of numerous other elements in the, in the rest of the film, it's interesting historicizing with the, with the assassination of Garfield being the mark of public violence, right, in the middle of the film. So the, the whole country has been affected now by the assassin. And that's, of course, what money is, the assassin. So, so you know, it's historicized. It has historical and, and, and almost abject realism that you, you, you rarely see, plus humor, which is, you know, the Western has always been, have touched, you know, in Ford's Westerns and in Hawks Westerns, there's humor. And here there's humor of the grimmest, possible level you could you know 
So, yeah, the end is, is worthy of a great film, and I, I would rank it among the 12 greatest American films in any genre.